Welcome back to the Leverage Podcast. I'm your co-host Ari Mizell. And I'm Nick Sonnenberg. And today we have a very special guest, our friend Jeff Madoff. Thank you, Jeff. You know, we always say very special guest, but I don't know if today really is. You also always say Madoff, and it's Madoff. He made off <laughs> with the money. <laughs> so uh, it's actually Madoff. So I've Jeff been pronouncing is, it wrong all these years. <laughs> Jeff is here for a pilot episode of Three Jews in Studio today. No. Um, so Jeff Ma- Madoff. Sorry, Jeff Madoff is a a branding expert, a filmmaker, a creative person. It's really and, like a modern-day renaissance, man. Yeah, really I mean, when you go into your office, I mean, it's filled with um, books on design, music, art, everything the opposite of my library. <laughs> and when you walked in here today, it looked like a character in Carmen Sandiego, as you pointed out. So now that we've gotten past the niceties. Um, <laughs> Those, that was yeah. the nice part? Oh, my God. <laughs> What's thanks. the rest of this going to be like? <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for being here, Jeff. So, and you're also a friend of both of ours. So, um, Jeff, why don't you tell us what you do? Tell everybody that's listening what you do. What I do is a few things. Uh, my primary business is coincidentally called Madoff Productions, and we do commercials, brand positioning, uh, webisodes, what's now called branded content, and we do that for a variety of clients from Victoria's Secret, Ralph Lauren, Harvard School for Public Health, American Academy of Dramatic Arts, uh, a, quite a range of clients. And uh, that's my primary business. I'm a professor at the New School. I teach a course at Parsons uh, called Creativity, Making a Living with Your Ideas, uh, which is great. I love doing that. And I love being in contact with the students. And I bring in different guests every week. And we kind of deconstruct what they do. Uh, And the point of the class is to try to break down the walls between different businesses to show how fruitful potential collaborations can be. And I'm uh, producing my first Broadway play, and it's about uh, musical legend Lloyd Price, and uh, it's called Laudy Miss Claudy, which was his song in 1952 that created the youth movement in music. Literally, he was the first teenager to sell over a million records. Before, Yeah, before that... Pardon? In the 50s. 1952. As a matter of fact, the second largest song, which started the uh, executives that recorded him, executives is way overstating, by the way, <laughs> how, form, how informal the structure was, 27,000 was the most ever sold by a younger person. And then wow. Lloyd sold over a million. Wow. So he went from, uh, he went from making $26.39 a week digging trenches for septic tanks to 8,000 a week within a month, uh-huh. and his life changed. Yeah. So it's about his life, and it's the crossroads of the youth movement, the civil rights movement, and the birth of rock and roll. How, how has it been producing your first... I mean, what's your role in this? I mean, it's your show. Are you the director, producer, both? Of the play? Of the play. The play, I'm the writer. Okay. Uh, I, I won't get too into the weeds, but there's a big difference between a writer on a movie and a writer in theater. In theater, a writer has the creative control. In movies, gotcha. they don't. Oh. Uh, and so I'm one of the producers. That's by default. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's an interesting and slow journey. When are you expecting it to come? Is there an expected date that this is going to come out? Or uh, We are financed through what's called a staged reading or a 29-hour, which is a show you put on for potential backers and producers. Uh, 
It's been a really interesting journey, but it, it it's like any other business. As you're trying to get it going, sure, people don't call you back. <laughs> you have to stay persistent. Uh, and, you know, it's a Sisyphean task of pushing that rock up a hill to try to get that business going. Uh, I'll mention one other thing because it's probably relevant to your audience. I'm also doing a documentary on the history of Silicon Valley. Oh, cool. Which is approaching it in a very, very different way uh, than it's ever been looked at. I remember you saying you were going to go into one of the like Y, y Combinator or Techstars and try to record their their demo day or their pitch day. That was is some that of, part the, of that. Yeah, that was some of the B roll we wanted to show just what a competitive space it is. But we're going back in time uh, and bringing up names most people don't even know about, like Vannevar Bush, who started Raytheon, uh, and interesting people who were at MIT and started to facilitate the migration to California. And uh, it's it's very cool. It's very, very cool. And it, it's so much fun because it's like a detective story when you do research and you start connecting the dots. And, you know, the term idea comes from the Greek term, which means to see. And so when you see these things, you start seeing patterns. Patterns are what ideas are. And it's really been fascinating unearthing these connections. And it, it really is like, you know, when you're – You've seen a detective movie and they've got the bulletin board and they've got all the cards up and the lines connecting this, this, this and that. And then you start seeing a pattern which is really, really fascinating about how, how all these things got started. So that, it, that's a very cool story too. So would you say your primary medium is film? Well, at this point, video to be specific. But <laughs> uh, yes, but, you know, I also – I write – uh, and although I write on a word processor, I also do write longhand too because I do believe in the connection between your brain and your muscles and your hand and retention and all of that. So I still like handwrite my appointment book. Not that I don't screw it up, by the way. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so I think whatever palette's out there that helps you get done what you want to get done, uh, which is I know the purpose of your business, which is offering a wide palette so that people can stay organized and get done. I don't claim to be organized. Uh, you know, I wish I was. Ever since I was a kid, I liked like roll-top desks and things that had lots of drawers because that created for me the illusion of being organized, which I've never been able to actualize in real life. <laughs> When is this movie going to come out? Uh, we don't know. No. We don't know. How We're, far along are you with it? Uh, we're completing the pitch piece. We're financed through the initial pitch. Gotcha. So we're going to be looking for investors. So if you have any people listening to this uh, who have a substantial bank account and want to get involved in really cool things, uh, they should contact me because I'd love to involve them in the most exciting thing they'll ever be involved with in their lives. It's a good pitch. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm also so I'm curious about this too because you. The the industry, at least the film and video industry, is one of those industries that has been around for a very long time and is a very old industry, but at the same time, it's one of the industries that is usually on the forefront of technology. There's a lot of technologies that end up in consumer hands that start in the film business. So how have you seen some of the big changes in terms of what you do over the past decades, I guess? Because you do do very you know modern stuff, branded content, as you said, but you've also you were, I guess, forged in a lot of the more older style of doing this. Yes. Initially, I was doing stone tablets. Mm. 
Yeah, and you, uh, you shaved recently. <laughs> I yeah. did. I did after parting the Hudson River to get here. <laughs> uh, You're still late. <laughs> I was still late. Well, come on. I was walking length lengthwise. That was the problem. Uh, Uber was surging. Through the Hudson River. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You mean surge pricing? You know, when you ask that question, uh, it's interesting because we moved a year ago and uh, from 52nd Street to 29th Street. And as we're going through what to keep and what not to keep, and I've been in that space for 17 years, yeah. I had quad tape, right. which is videotape that's that wide. Can you see that on the radio podcast? Yeah. Can you see that? Uh, it's one-inch tape, beta, 35-millimeter film, 16-millimeter film, digi-beta, yes, eight, super eight. Uh, and it was like a history of media. It was like kind of wild. Mm -hmm. But I remember back in the, I think it was 1981, this uh, guy from Panasonic came in. He wanted to meet with me. And uh, he said, I'm going to show you something. I said, all right. And he reaches into his briefcase and he pulls out a shiny disc the size of an LP, a long playing record. Laser disc. And he said, do you know what this is? And I said, yes, it's a shiny disc. And he said, no, this is the future. It's a laser disc. And I said, I know it's a laser disc. <laughs> and it's the future for now. And that's going to get smaller and smaller. And at some point, whether it's over phone lines or something, it's going to end up being even a more refined delivery system. And he said, well, don't you want to be a part of that? And I said, I create content. So I don't care how it gets there. I just have to be aware of the delivery systems. Film is a delivery system. Streaming is a delivery system. Mm -hmm. LaserDisc for a delivery system. Uh, a really smart company that made that transition not only seamlessly but extremely profitably was Netflix, mm -hmm. who started off delivering you a physical object. And the last thing they wanted to do, by the way, was to have a warehouse of DVDs. That's not what they wanted. And so the less physical inventory you have, the more that you can stream, uh, the smarter you are. So. To answer your question, yes, I have seen all these different delivery systems, you know, but being a content creator, that's secondary to me. First, Which you Netflix is now, by the way. That's right. Them. Mm -hmm. You're right. I mean, You're right. And even that was even a step better than what Blockbuster was doing with the physical brick and mortar. I mean, at least sending you the DVDs was one increment better than that, but then they took it two steps further with what they're doing now. Which is very interesting that you mention that because one of the big uh, questions is – brick-and-mortar retail. Is that going to survive? Is it going to change? What is it going to do? And when you look back, because there's antecedents to all these things, and this is part of what I teach in my class, and it's a great example you brought up, as you look at Blockbuster, there was a, that was a time bomb that mm -hmm. was waiting to explode. And they had all these stores with all that inventory, and there's no way that that could sustain if they were paying attention to the technology. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many case studies on Blockbuster and Netflix. It's a pretty famous yeah. case study. Well, I was giving you more credit than you deserve, I guess. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> but that is a great parallel. Now, of course, it's happening with apparel, and that's huge. You go on Madison Avenue and you see yeah. whether it's Ralph Lauren closing a store, many of the other designers, uh, designer luxury lines are trying to renegotiate their real estate deals because it used to be – in the prime shopping areas, the sky was the limit in terms of what landlords could charge. That's no longer the case. And so, you know, what's going on in retail 
is really interesting. And if you look back to Blockbuster and Netflix, you start oh. seeing the antecedents to what's going on there. Yeah, just on my street, uh, Barnes & Noble went out of business, uh, Urban Outfitters, Radio Shack, and uh, GNC, just on my block. I mean, so Coach, the Coach is um, arguably their, their biggest, or their, their most important store is the one in Soho on Prince and West Broadway. And uh, we were talking to somebody there, and they were saying basically like they don't actually do a lot of it, it. It's their number one store, but not they don't do a lot of sales out of it necessarily. People walk in, they look at a bag, they walk outside, and then they buy it online. <laughs> you know, um, it, I mean, for a number of reasons, maybe it's cheaper. Even if it's not, people just don't want to carry things. I mean, there's so many reasons why current retail just doesn't work. And what's interesting now that's popping up are these companies like Bonobos that have this endless aisle concept where you can go and try the clothes on but not buy it in the store, and you just go to an iPad and buy it. So it's like this hybrid, so they don't have to store too much inventory. That's interesting. Tesla, too. You know, you yeah. walk in there, there's one car, and then you want you pull up the iPad and you order the car you want. I think that, you know, the interesting thing is because I teach every semester, you know, it was interesting to me that the students said, well, yeah, in a store, though, you can just walk out with it. <laughs> and, you know, it was instant, you know, just like newspapers as opposed to tablets. You know, it's there. The batteries don't run out. You know, there are things that I think will change because primarily shopping is a social experience. Yeah. And you can't replace social experiences. So when the movie in, I'm sorry, when the music industry really hit the wall due to, to streaming and piracy and so on. What became the revenue source were concerts. Yeah, right, it used to be concerts were to market the musicians to drive sales of albums. Now it's the opposite. And so I think that if you walk by a, an Apple store, they're always busy. Uh, Amazon is opening up, I think, 425 or 450 stores. Now, part of that's going to be distribution systems, and they're opening them in markets where they can then have delivery within a couple of hours. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Retail is not going to go away. But the big mistake that was made is that the first thing that was cut was customer service. Your entire business leverage is built on customer service. And so that's the key thing. And that's often the first thing that businesses cut. So whether it's they're trying to discourage customers by keeping them on hold for a long time, whether you walk into a big store like Macy's and you can't even find somebody to pay, yeah. what's a compelling reason to go? But Especially if, it, if you know exactly what you want and you could be sitting on your couch and click a button right. and have it delivered to you in a few hours. But see, in shopping, what's interesting is that there's a discovery process, which can be fun. And, you know, people are still people and the things that push the same button still do. But you have to think about new ways to approach that transaction. Uh, just like you thought of new ways to approach how you organize and facilitate a business. So it's about thinking creatively and about figuring out how you can do these things. What, I wonder if in the future how vir virtual reality is going to impact the shopping experience. Maybe you, one day you can put a pair of goggles on on the couch and get that social type of experience from shopping and be in a store seeing the stuff and then click a button and have it delivered to you. That would be frightening. Uh, and, and the reason it would be frightening, I was, I was at a uh, dinner party, and we were having this kind of a discussion, and somebody said, uh, and he was a guy who was, I think, around 27, actually a successful businessman at that age, an entrepreneur. And he said, well, you really think there's a difference between talking to somebody on Facebook and talking to somebody face-to-face? -face? And I said, the mere fact that you're asking that yeah, question right. is troubling. Yeah. yeah. 
Because, yeah, there's a huge difference, you know. And I think that that's, you know, we're just learning about this technology. It's really new, all of it. We don't Mm -hmm. know the effects of social media. We don't know the effects of not being in contact for long periods of time with people. I mean, the only people that used to go through that were astronauts, I guess, you know. But, uh, you know, we're all kind of astronauts because we're going off into this space that nobody has really explored yet. And I think the results are far from in on how that affects us. But there's also no turning it back. Well, it's actually interesting. So I I interviewed Connor Blakely yesterday, who's a 17-year-old sort of whiz kid marketing guru, and he helps big companies like Sprint market to Gen Z, which is, uh, I think, 17 and under or something. I'm actually doing fetal marketing. Yeah. Uh. All right. I mean, it's just where you get the sound waves in there. He said something that I found very surprising, which was that his generation, because they have grown up with all of this access and FaceTiming their moms and, like, ordering a pizza whenever they want, that a lot of the younger generation now actually does want more face-to-face interaction, which I found really surprising. I'm, I'm te- We're technically millennials, I guess, and uh, we've grown up, like, you know, I, I didn't have a phone. I didn't have email when I was young, and I grew into that, and so now it's, it's like, a, a more of a thing that we've sort of meshed with. But he was saying that this younger generation now does want that face-to-face interaction more, which I found you, interesting. You know, I, I also try to keep in perspective that when you talk about millennials, Gen X, uh, Generation Z, baby boomers, which is what I'm a part of. Oh, I thought you were part of the silent generation. <laughs> That's why I'm talking now, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I, I, you know, uh, my grandfather is one of the pioneers in silent radio. Oh, perfect. Yeah. yeah. Didn't work. People couldn't tell whether it was on or not. But he thought he was on to something, you know. And I said, you know, it's really hard to be a mime on radio. It's worth trying. (laughs) Anything's worth trying, right? Uh, But the point is that those categories were developed by marketers. They're not real, okay? There are people that are baby boomers and want the same thing that millennials want. There's people that are Gen Z that want the same thing that, that another group wants. And that demographic was literally the construct of marketers all designed to sell you stuff. There's no real Gen X. There's no real millennials. It's not a. It's not a block. It's not monolithic. But you do. Don't you find patterns though in people that are in certain generations or certain age age ranges? Like you can obviously someone that's a baby boomer, you might find that they have characteristics of a younger generation. But there are, there is like some commonality among generations. No. Uh, that's what I'm saying. There is commonality. Okay. And I'm, what I'm saying is that, look, I, I'm totally agnostic in terms of I don't care about somebody's age. I don't care about somebody's <clears throat> gender. I don't care about those things. What I care about is are you intelligent? Do you have a sense of curiosity? Do you have a sense of humor? Do you have a sense of empathy? And if those categories are fulfilled, I don't care if you're 22 or if you're 92. It doesn't make any difference. When I was in college— uh, my degree, I had a double major in philosophy and psychology. Bertrand Russell, the great British philosopher, was arrested for protesting the Vietnam War. He was 94. I may have the age off by a couple of years, but that was generally it. Thought, Man, I want to be like that. That is cool. This guy is out there and vital and engaged and doing stuff at that age. And I know people that are, you know, I can see it in students who were 19 or 20, who were already sleepwalking through life. And whether or not they will wake up, because oftentimes a lot of the damage and learning damage has been done much, much earlier, whether it's at home or in early schooling. 
But there are those commonalities, and I think focusing on those rather than what are many times artificial differences among people, not among generations, you know, and, and I think that that's the real mm-hmm. – that's how I choose to look at it. Well, right, and I think another way of putting that too, like Bert, actually it's funny you give Bertrand Russell as an example because he – I think it, it's not just, you know, what sort of generation you are, but I think it's probably what you've lived through, and he was very vocal during the nuclear develop, – the development of nuclear weapons, which was a pretty big turning point for us as a – as a mankind. So I think that's probably part of it too in terms of like what you've lived through at what Absolutely. point it sort of energizes you. I mean, we're all shaped by the events that happen around us, you know, and uh, and so I think that you're right and you always have to look at context. There's a great book by George S. Trow and it started off as, as I believe it was a New Yorker article and it's a short book, but it's brilliant. It's called The Context of No Context. And so much of the world we live in day to day has no context. And there are so many disparate things that are said and claimed without putting it into any kind of a world at all. And therefore, I believe meaningless because without context, nothing has any meaning. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, actually, that's a really good way to sort of bring it back to this. So people listening who are either entrepreneurs or they're thinking about their businesses, one of the things that you got me thinking about before we talk about content about Netflix is that a lot of people – you ask them what what business they're in, and they tell you. But if you dig further, they might. It's really that they're actually in a different business per se. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not necessarily in. The, you're not in the DVD delivery business. You're in the content business, that kind of thing. So that context, I think, is very important in terms of how people think about not only the services or products that they offer, but really how they do business, uh, because that's an ever evolving thing. So I just I thought that was a good way to sort of tie it together. Well, and the knowing what business you're in is critical. And it may sound obvious, but it's not to most people. Uh, Part of what I do when I work with companies that hire me to talk about becoming a brand and how do you create a brand, uh, that notion of knowing what business you're in, it's surprising how many companies don't. So I'll I'll give you a real-world example. Uh, Polaroid. Yeah. Okay. Polaroid literally created the market for instant photography. Now, when it started, instant photography was a minute. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But it was instant photography. Lapping it. And uh, you actually used to put a chemical fixative on it. That, on Polaroid? Know, yeah. Oh. Yeah. And uh, so anyhow, they created that market. And when digital came in, I'm really shortening this story a lot, but when digital came in, the brand that created the market and had the name for instant photography was totally bypassed. Uh, Kodak started a division to look into digital and paid no attention to it. And uh, so where's Polaroid now? They thought they were in the business of proprietary film and proprietary cameras. What they were in the business of was instant photography. doesn't make any difference whether it's film or it's being captured on a digital chip. You know, and and that's knowing what business you're in because also things change. And if you talk to uh, entrepreneurs, a lot of times the business they started is not the business that they end up with five, ten years later. It's very different. I, I have a Polaroid drone. I mean, they make a drone now. That's, you know, it's a, with a camera. So, do you, do you think that some of these things like, like Polaroid or even um, I've heard some <clears throat> talks about like those old Nokia phones. Do you think that there's a chance that some of these older older things that we were using come back. So, for instance, privacy's 
privacy is becoming like a big topic and nothing's private. The, anyone can be listening to your phone. You have no idea. Or if you have an Echo device, people could be listening. So do you think that the world could kind of take a 360 to some degree and people could be going back to using some of these non-smartphones because all the data privacy issues that have been coming out? No. I, I don't think that's going to happen. But what does happen in consumer markets is, for instance, the largest growing market for recorded music is vinyl. But that's a large percentage on a very small sliver of the market. So there are always going to be people that are into whether it's, you know, tubed amplifiers, you know, because they think they have a warmer sound or vinyl, you know, records. Uh, or having a flip phone just because they, you know, I want to have, a, I actually want a rotary cell phone. I would like to have a rotary <laughs> cell phone. But you know, there there are there are people that are always going to want something that differentiates what they have from everybody else, or there's something they like about it, just because it it's either kitsch or cool or mm -hmm. uh, whatever. But do I think we will do a three six? Do, no, I think full we'll three sixty. But do you think that uh, it'll come back to us? Not obviously where it was, but do you think? to some small degree, like Polaroid or these Nokia phones will come back a little bit? Well, Polaroids have very little bit, but Polaroids have, uh, you know, just for the novelty of it. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. but I think that once you get beyond that kind of novelty market, it, there's not any big promise for that. I, I honestly, I think that we're going to go even farther into this direction because there, there was a really good article I was reading the other day about how the the phone, the iPhone, for example, is not actually that innovative. It's really just getting every a computer and everything just getting smaller and smaller and more compact. But we're really moving towards something where we're not going to have smartphones. It'll be more like Star Trek where you can just say, computer, you know, wherever you are, and contact this person or tell me this answer. Order this. And well, you have that already. Amazon has that. But I mean, literally not having a smartphone anymore. Right. At some point. Yeah. They tried it with Google Glass. That was a bit of a failure. But yeah. Well, no, but this would require obviously yeah. more ubiquitous sort of technological spread. But so, so back to Polaroid, <clears throat> do you think that they made a mistake then by branding themselves as the instant photo company? Or do you think that they just made the mistake that they weren't keeping up with technology and competing in the digital market? I think that the larger companies get, especially when they've gone through periods of essentially non-competitive profiting, uh, there tends to be an arrogance that comes in that they don't think they can be touched. Uh, the, oftentimes, the executives become very, very insular in those companies and are no longer aware of what's going on in the marketplace, nor do they have people to tell them because everybody's afraid of them. And most people's job is to keep their job before doing anything smart or innovative. It's keeping their job becomes a primary job. Uh, so I think that it's about, you know, you always have to keep your ear to the ground to see who's coming. And I know some smart entrepreneurs that they wake up every day thinking, who's trying to kill me today? Who's trying to eat my lunch? Who's trying to take away my business? Uh, and that gets into a whole other area because that's personalities in business and, you know, the obsession that is oftentimes necessary to build a large company. I mean, Steve Jobs was an obsessive personality. Bill Gates was an obsessive personality. Uh, Thomas Edison was an obsessive personality. Henry Ford. I mean, you know, these huge industries, uh, you know, were driven, though. The mythology, however, is it's never one person, but one person becomes the figurehead for a company. Uh, bringing it back to what you said, I think that uh, 
Polaroid's mistake was not staying aware of what was happening around them. Same thing, by the way, happened to Sony. Sony defined the personal listening experience with the Walkman. <laughs> and that was the generic name. It was called the Walkman. I was in... And Discman, too. That's right. And I was in Paris doing the French, shooting the French collections. And Sony had representatives handing out... This is in, in like 1981 or something, 82. They were handing out Walkmans to people they thought seemed interesting at the big collections, fashion collections there. And then people are walking around with headphones for the first time. Nobody saw that before. What, what are you doing? What's that? What are you listening to? And so, you know, I was thinking, oh, this is kind of cool. There's a soundtrack to life, you know, that you're, that you're listening to. Sony made computers. They already had the technology. And interestingly, they also had content, Sony Music and Sony Pictures. So they didn't even have to license things initially if they would have stayed on top of it. Akira Morita, who was the visionary of Sony, when he died, Sony lost all their forward momentum and drive. And Sony, by the way, is the company that inspired Steve Jobs. Sony made all the cool appliances, you know. There's two things that inspired him, I believe. Sony being one, they made the best TVs, they made the coolest appliances. And Braun, uh, Dieter Ram, his designs. Uh, or if you look at Dieter Ram's designs for Braun, uh, they, you can see exactly what uh, Apple appropriated for their tablet, for their TV, for their phone. Hmm. It's really interesting. Interesting. And by the way, uh, for your listeners, you can go online and just Google Dieter Ram, uh, and he did these uh, criteria for good design, these 10 steps for good design which are fantastic and interesting, and anybody interested in design should read it. And it's, and it's, and it's provocative because you see that there were things going back to the 60s that he did that Apple emulated. So, so what's, what, what's the lesson to be learned here? Like no matter what size you get to, never be complacent and always be trying to think about the next iteration or the next thing that you can do because if you don't figure that out, someone else is going to and – Squash you? Well, if you look at, for instance, the companies that are have the highest value right now, which is Apple and Google and Facebook. Uh, I forget what the other one was. Uh, but it's the on mobile? No, the four the four of the top companies. None of them have traditional business people at the helm. None. Mm-hmm. That's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. That was never the case. And if you go back. Just 20 years and look at who are the top 10 companies, these companies didn't even exist. And now they're at the top. So, yes, that disruption in the market, you need to pay attention to. You need to pay attention to what's happening. And the only thing that's certain is that things will change. Mm -hmm. So another point here, and it's good that you brought up the, the Walkman, is in terms of adapting by finding new markets for your product. And so the Sony arguably, you know, launched the cassette tape industry, which would probably be considered to be all but dead now, except there are two companies that do over 3 million cassette tapes every year, and they go to the prison population. And they're clear. They have to make them clear so you can't hide anything in them. They don't have screws. They're fused together. And these two companies were big cassette tape makers, and that's how they sort of pivoted. It's for the prison market now because it's safe there. So sometimes that, that means... You know, the product can stay the same and maybe adjust a little bit, but finding a new market for it. They don't it. have Sonos in prison? No. You know, they're, uh, you know the Swell bottles? Only, only made off. <laughs> yeah. He made off with uh, Sonos? Yeah, I got one, actually. Yeah. 
Uh, so I met uh, Sarah, who's the founder of the company, yesterday. And what was so interesting, because it's a, it's a water steel bottle. <laughs> water bottle, right? And uh, her notion was she dresses well. She dresses fashionably. She lives in New York. And she these people pulling out something that looks like it would be holding cleaning fluid or something. And she said, you know, these bottles, you know, are people wear nice accessories. They buy good-looking purses or backpacks or whatever. Their water bottle ought to be a fashion accessory. Useful. There's also a good environmental component because you reuse it and reuse it instead of using plastics. But I thought, wow, that is really cool to look at a water bottle, something that you just kind of take for granted. And who would think that there's a market for that? She's doing $100 million and growing. And it's because she looked at a water bottle and Mm -hmm. thought, you know, this isn't a water bottle. It's a fashionable accessory. And I'm going to do these in colors and patterns and make it cool. And she did. And sometimes it's just having the vision to see something different. You don't have to reinvent the wheel at all, but you have to be clever. And again, in the context of the world, she saw fashionable women taking out ugly water bottles, ugly plastic water bottles. And now she's created this business, which is just growing like mad. And it's it's fascinating. I mean, can you think of anything more banal than a water bottle? And she's built that kind of business out of it. So, I mean, I, I was just so taken by that uh, and the vision that that took because it, it was a simple vision. And she executed really, really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have our leverage branded bottles from Swell. So, okay, well, so, Jeff, the, the last question that we always like to ask on these interviews is what are your top three pieces of advice for people to be more effective? And you can interpret that however you like. <laughs> so you mean for your male listeners, they could use Viagra and they could be more effective that I mean, way? I, is that? I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was one of your top tips. <laughs> right, so two more, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, don't, yeah, don't call it a top tip, by the way. <laughs> Just the tip. <laughs> uh, I'm surprised, actually, it took us this long to deteriorate. To make you a know, joke? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we usually so. get there, like, within the first minute <laughs> yeah. and a half. I don't know what happened. You know, and I apologize to your listeners for that because I know what they must expect from you since I know what I expect from you. So, Well, now's uh, your time to shine. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, I think that one aspect is persistence, and it's probably the most important aspect is – If you are going for something you want, then you have to persist because one of the few things that entrepreneurs uh, don't talk about is how hard it is. It's really hard to start, build, and sustain a business, and it takes a lot of persistence in order to do it, and and that's everything from – and let me throw back a question to you. Of the people that you call, I'm not talking about good friends who, you know, will call you back, but as you're trying to initiate deals, getting things going and so on, what percentage of people call back promptly? Five. (laughs) I think it matters at what point you're asking that question. You know, now it's much higher than it would have been a year or two ago, you know? It it is. uh, I've been doing this as a very informal survey for a while, and this is... CEOs of top companies down to people trying to start up, and the average falls around 15%. Mm -hmm. So that means that there's 85% of the time that you've got to take the initiative and you've got to persist. So the people that work with me, and I'll I'll follow up on something, I'll say, did you, uh, have you heard from so-and-so? And And they said, no, I haven't heard back yet. I said, then call them again. 
Well, I call them three times, then call them four times, and then call them five times, or email, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then people are concerned about being a pain in the ass or a pest. And I said, "You're," uh, and they said, "When is it too much?" I said, "When they tell you don't call back, and they say no." <laughs> we should be told that to the VAs on a regular basis. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 true because you have to also get out of your own way and realize that you're not the most important person to them. You have not become important yet. And in order to create the opportunity to make yourself important, you need to persist and you need to then demonstrate the value that you can bring. And opening that door so you can even prove that takes a lot of pushing, a lot of knocking, a lot of calling back. So I think that persistence is really important. And coupled with that persistence is have something of value to offer, have something to say. Uh, Because if you don't, you're going to wear out your welcome really quickly. So I think that's another thing because it's pestering if it's, yeah, I just thought I'd check in. About what? Yeah, just checking in. (laughs) Uh, So persistence is really important. Offering value every time you try to reach out and make that contact is really important uh, because it does all get really frustrating. Uh, And realizing your place in the world, meaning that your importance hasn't yet been demonstrated. And so it takes a lot more to get somebody's attention. And I think that the most precious commodity out there is people's attention. So how do you get it and how do you keep it? So you need to be strategic about how you interact with people, especially in those stages. Uh, And I also think I'll add a fourth, which is never take any business you have for granted. Never take any client you have for granted. Always constantly be demonstrating your value to them because that's how you build relationships. And ultimately, no matter how sophisticated we get technologically about business, it's about relationships. That's what drives all of it. That's why I'm here with you guys. Oh, and before I forget, um, Audrey has um, been doing a great job on design, and uh, she's done a lot of work for your stuff, and just wanted to say thank you for recommending Audrey for design work, because she's fantastic. Well, thank you. The full disclosure, Audrey's my daughter, <laughs> and she's a very, very talented graphic designer, and I think has a gift for getting the concept of words with images. And so thank you for saying that. Yeah, client, clients yeah. have really loved loved what she's been producing. So thanks for recommending her. And luckily for her, she doesn't look as much like you as she does like your wife. That's right. Yeah. And you should thank my wife, Margaret, for giving birth to her. And, <laughs> thank you, Margaret. Uh, uh, and you'll also have to meet Jake because he's doing amazing stuff. I, I want to play chess with Jake. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, Jeff, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks for being here. That was fun. Want to create more positive leverage in your life? Visit www.getleverage.com to access additional interviews, our blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe to hear a new episode every week.